If you have your Bibles or you just want to follow along on the screen, I'm going to read from uh, chapter 14 of John's Gospel. Before we read that, let me go ahead and start with a confession, and that is, I can't cook. I never have, nor do I claim a, a desire to. But my wife's birthday every year, she has had to uh, make her own uh, birthday cake if she wanted it to be edible. So one year, I decided I, I would make one for her. And she said, it's not hard. You just follow the directions. And so I just wanted to make a really great cake. And so I was at the grocery store picking out, and I was thinking, you know, if one box of uh, a cake mix is good, three are better. And when it called for uh, a cup of something, uh, three had to be better. And so you end up with this monster cake when I was done that I'm pretty sure was not edible. You know, we are working our way through how does a Christian grow? And there are ingredients that go into our growth. And we started the semester by saying that one of the important ingredients to spiritual growth is our faith. What we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us because God loves us, because he wants to have a relationship with us, because he wants to make us his treasure, he sent his son in our place to live a life that we couldn't live. We couldn't meet the standard he did for us. He died a death that we could not die in order to pay for our sin, and so he died for us, and we receive that work by faith. A second ingredient is uh, repentance. Because we believe these things about God, we also believe some things about us. And not just about what we have done, but what we have failed to believe. And we repent not merely of actions, but of our failure to trust. And because of faith and repentance... It needs another ingredient, and and you'll know this when you try to bake. If you don't put yeast in, there's no power. And so the power for spiritual growth comes from the Holy Spirit. And that's what we are going to look at today and for the next three weeks. The person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer as he grows. Now, if you've been in a Presbyterian church very long, your natural reaction, I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Because <laughs> we don't talk about him a whole lot, and, and in reality, we don't make much of him. There's a fourth ingredient that we will look at in about three weeks, four weeks, and that is obedience. And that ingredient is important Because it's a byproduct of all the other ingredients. That is, obedience doesn't create faith. Obedience doesn't create repentance. Obedience doesn't uh, uh, cause the Holy Spirit to act in our lives. But because we believe, because we repent, and because the Holy Spirit is at work, we obey. 
And so with that in mind, that gives you a little bit of context as we begin to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning. I'm going to read from, again, the 14th uh, chapter of the Gospel according to John, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, who's not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. May God help us to understand this, his word. Why doesn't the Holy Spirit get much press? Why, why don't we talk much? We give lots of emphasis to God, the Father, who's the creator and the judge of the cosmos, the one who created all things by the word of his uh, uh, of his mouth and all things came into being the son who came to earth Emmanuel God with us who who lived here uh, for about 33 years obeying God in every way and that being assigned to our account and Jesus uh, dying on a cross and and resurrected and gone to the uh, to uh, heaven sits on the right hand of God the father and intercedes on our behalf we know that But why doesn't the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, get much press? In fact, it's hard press on the man on the street to even know the answer to who is the Holy Spirit. J.A. Packer, when he defines the role of the Holy Spirit in his book, Knowing God, says this, The Holy Spirit functions like a floodlight. The Holy Spirit's job is to draw attention to someone other than himself. 
That is that the Holy Spirit's job is to point to Jesus. In fact, Packer makes this point that I think is the reason why he doesn't get much press. You know you're talking about the person of the Holy Spirit when you're talking about Jesus. That is, that if you single out the Holy Spirit and make him all about himself, then you know you're not talking about the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus, when he says, my father is going to send another helper to you, he's not coming here with a whole new ministry, a whole new role, but simply to remind you of my teaching. And so we're going to look at that. In fact, I think our text answers who is the Holy Spirit with a single word answer. You're going to find it in verse 16 and again in verse 26. This same word. It's translated for us in English as the word helper. The problem is, is that when you lay out different versions of the Bible, other English translations, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the uh, uh, New American Standard Version, the Old American Standard Version, the inter, uh, International Version, and you get to the English Standard there are ten different ways to translate the word in, that's in the original language into English. There's probably not another word in the New Testament that has been translated so various as this word is in the New Testament. And that has led to some confusion about his role because we can't capture all that that word means by simply one English word. The word in the original language is parakletos, that often we say someone who is a parakletos, a paraclete, we, in order to understand that, you have to understand that it is literally two words that have been brought together to create a whole new word that didn't exist before. That is, the word para means to come alongside, to be beside someone. And the word kletos means to call to call someone like a, a vocation. And so when you bring those two words together, a paraclete is someone who comes alongside you to support you, to encourage you, to defend you, to plead your case for you. And that is why it has been so difficult to get an English word to capture all of those meanings because he's been called a counselor. He's, he's been uh, uh, called uh, uh, someone, the encourager. But he's also been called the advocate. And that is the word in which I would like us to focus on this morning. The Holy Spirit, not as a general helper, but a specific advocate. Like a lawyer. Like an attorney. Uh, someone who comes alongside you in a weak position and strengthens that position by representing you, pleading your case. And therefore, I want us to look at him in the context of a legal system, in the context of an emotional support, and in the context of renewal. And so in the beginning, let's look at the Holy Spirit in his role as a legal advocate. 
Someone who represents us in the context of a court case. Someone who represents us as a defense attorney. Look at verse 14 again. I'm on verse 16 of chapter 14. It says, I'm going to send another helper. This assumes or presumes that there's a first advocate. You don't send another advocate unless there already is an advocate, right? We can, we can understand that assumption that you don't send a second unless there's a first. Jesus is that first advocate because it's, he says the father is going to send the helper which means another helper, because I'm already here to remind you of what I have done. That is, the Holy Spirit operates, as J.I. Packer said, as a floodlight, as an emphasis, a way to, to understand and a way to see what Jesus has done for us. Verse 16, in its context, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So the natural question that comes to my mind, and maybe it's come to yours, is the simple question of why do we need an advocate? Why is Jesus an advocate, the first advocate? That is, why do we need someone to plead a case, our case, before a God in heaven? We know from Hebrews that it says that Jesus is our high priest, who always lives to intercede for us before the face of God. But why? Why is that necessary? We, we understand that the Bible says he does, but the question is, why does he? Why does the Holy Spirit throw a floodlight on Jesus' work as our first advocate, being the second advocate? A significant part of the human experience, that is, our life here, is that we feel that we're always on trial. That is, we feel, maybe I'm just preaching myself and you don't feel this way, but my guess is, if you're honest with yourself, you feel this way at least sometimes. That you don't measure up in somebody's eyes. Maybe it's your own eyes, but in general, it's probably someone else. Maybe it was your, your parents' standard of, uh, and expectations for you, or maybe a spouse, maybe, maybe your children. You never measured up to their expectations. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was just a friend. But this feeling that you're on trial before them because you don't measure up to their expectations. And we are often reminded by people that we don't measure up. Let me tell you a story about Amy Tan. Amy Tan is a writer. She's written four uh, uh, novels. And the novels are fiction, and they, but they're all about, in general, uh, what it means to be an immigrant in the United States. And uh, she has written these incredible articles, but she comes from a traditional family. What I mean by that is there are some expectations of the family for her and her future and the types of things that she's going to give her life to for the family. In her family, they wanted her to grow up to be a neurosurgeon and that on the weekends, she would be a concert pianist. Now, you're talking about high expectations in her family. She did not 
uh, do either of those things and was a huge disappointment, particularly to her mother. When she wrote a book called A Joy Luck Club, it hit number four on the New York Times bestseller list. And so she thought to herself, ah, I finally have done something that my mother will be proud of. So she calls her mom and she says, mom, you won't believe it. My last book is on the New York Times bestseller list. It's number four. And so her mom says, but what happened, Amy? What do you mean? What happened? Who's first? That is, that Amy, it's great that you're fourth, but come on, girl, why couldn't you be number one? And she's crushed. In our achievement-oriented society, we feel that we're never going to measure up. We feel that we are always on trial. Those voices put a spotlight on our weaknesses. And those voices don't just come on from the outside. Sometimes, many times, those voices are on the inside. And in a lot of ways, they can be far more damaging to our hearts than what other people say. Because we're more reticent to believe them. We can tell ourselves we are magnificent. We can tell ourselves that we are great. And then we can tell ourselves that we are strong. But we only say those things to ourselves because those things sometimes are not true. Instead, we feel that we're so small because we don't measure up. We say those things to cover. For about a year and a half, last year and the year before that, I was on this study committee for our denomination to write a paper on the role of women in the church. There are 11 uh, people on this committee, 10 other people other than myself. And I knew I was in trouble when I saw the names and all of the credentials that follow them. So... I noticed that when I, even before I get in the room, that my mentor, my seminary professor, he's the chancellor of the seminary in which I graduate, is on the committee. Uh, I noticed there is an Old Testament professor. There is a New Testament professor. Actually, there are two New Testament professors. I guess they figured we need twice as much work in the New Testament and then in the Old Testament. There were some leading uh, pastors uh, in our uh, denomination. Just the credentials alone are amazing. And so when I get into the room, the smart thing to do, and I've never been called the one who's done the smart thing, is to not say anything. Because in their ignorance, they might actually get the impression that I'm okay if I don't say anything. Well, because I've never had the ability to just stay quiet, they often found out that probably I didn't belong. It wasn't long that I began to feel that and obsess about that. 
and wondered who thought this was a great idea. There is an impulse in all of us, I am not speaking just of myself, to advocate for ourselves, to sound smarter than we are, to sound uh, stronger than we are, to sound better than we are because we're compensating for how we truly feel. And that is exhausting. Why do judgments by other people bother us so much? Why do I care what you think? And why do we seek to be our own advocates? I believe the answer that our text shows us is that we feel that there really are a set of demanding, piercing, pure eyes that can see us and can judge us. Our defensiveness tells us something. It tells us that we don't measure up and there really is someone out there who knows it. I think it's the reason why we can't relax. And I think it's the reason why we take ourselves so seriously. There's nothing wrong with being a serious person. I think I consider myself a serious person. I think the problem is when we take ourselves so seriously that we can't laugh at ourselves, that we can't be open to failure, we can't be open to being wrong. There's this nagging truth that we are supposed to be perfect. We know that because that's where we came from. We came from the garden of perfection. We never talk about the garden of Eden that way, but it was. Everything in it and everyone in it was perfect. It didn't stay that way because our first parents ruined it. And because they did, we've been hiding our shame ever since. If that's where we're from, where are we going? We're going to a city of perfection. Check out Genesis, I mean, Revelation 20, 21, and 22. Not only did we come from a garden of perfection, we're going to a city of perfection where we will be made perfect, where we will be known and loved. If our place of origin and our place of destiny is supposed to be perfection, what's going on in between that? And that is, is the work of the Holy Spirit is to conform us into the image of Christ, which is perfect. I don't think Amy's mother was wrong. I think Amy's mother was too realistic. That is, there really are two eyes that see our imperfection and have decided to do something about it, and that is to be our advocate. You and I need an advocate. We need someone who will stand in the gap between our unclean lips and the pure and seeing eyes of our God. In the courtroom, the client, no matter what you have seen on television, the client doesn't speak. His defense attorney, his advocate speaks for him. If he is successful, then the client is successful. If he fails to show the law is on your side, then you are the one who will bear the brunt. If he fails, you fail. 
The verdict depends upon your advocate's ability to show that the law is on your side. If the advocate fails, then you fail. If he succeeds, you succeed. And Jesus presents an infallible case on your behalf. Do you notice when you read the scriptures, you never find Jesus saying, well, he didn't do it. We plead not guilty. Even when he had the woman who had been caught in adultery, he didn't say, hey, guys, don't throw stones because she's not guilty. Because in the end, he says, go and sin no more. And that implies that she had already sinned. So we, we don't have a defense attorney who is pleading your innocence. Nor do we have an attorney, do we have a, an advocate who is appealing to the mercy of the judge. That is, yes, he did it, but here's some extenuating circumstances. If you understood how he grew up, if you just understood the difficulties of, their, of her life, then please give mercy. You never hear Jesus ask for our mercy. I mean, God's mercy for us. Instead, Jesus pleads for justice. And justice is a terrifying thing if as the client you know you're guilty. Because justice would mean you have to pay. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our own sins. I have quoted that verse so many times in the last 35 years and never noticed this. Why does John appeal to justice for forgiveness? You notice that in the verse? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Why does he appeal to justice? Because only death can satisfy the negative verdict for our sins. Jesus stands before the judgment seat and says, I died for Bruce. I have met the law's demands. Now it would be unjust to punish him for the same crime that I have paid for. Therefore, for Christians, judgment day is not in the future. He says it in this passage, that day, the day. That's another way of talking about judgment day. And for Christians, our judgment day happened at the cross and has ongoing effects. Jesus is our legal advocate crying now for justice. That negative verdict has been satisfied for those who believe. Justice without Christ is terrifying. Justice with Christ is salvation. The Holy Spirit throws a floodlight on that. That Jesus Christ has satisfied the requirement of the law, the demand of the law. And therefore, you know you're talking about the work of the Spirit as our legal advocate when you're talking about the work of Jesus Christ as our first advocate. And here's the connector. It's one thing to know that, but there's a problem in our hearts 
that we need somebody on a moment by moment. I wouldn't even say day by day. That might be too infrequent. But moment by moment, on the inside and on the outside, reminding us that he had done that. And that's why he's our emotional advocate. Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, this is verse 26, but the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what? All that I have said. I've told you a lot of things in the three years you've been with me. But you're going to have problems remembering those things. And so I am sending the Holy Spirit to be with you and in you to remind you of all that I have taught you. And so verse 26 implies that you and I are going to struggle with amnesia about what Jesus has done and the verdict that God has rendered because of what Jesus has done with regards to you. And it's not like there's a vacuum here. There's not like this is done without anyone else screaming out the opposite to us. There literally is. It's not paranoia. There really is someone out to get you, and he's called the accuser. His name is Satan, and he's the prosecuting attorney and has already lost the case with you on you when he tried to prosecute you in God's court. But he is a sore loser and is trying to get you to feel ashamed for what you have done, to begin to carry those burdens of guilt and shame again. He is the accuser who is before God day and night and trying to get us back, not into God's court because he's already lost there, but in a lower court. And for you to think that that lower court carries weight. If he can't get us before God and reverse that, he knows he can't. He's going to get you to believe that you're, no one is ever going to take you serious. He's going to get you to believe that you're hopeless and helpless. You will never recover from this. Forget the verdict. Remember what you have done. And the Holy Spirit's job is to come along and be that inner voice in you and say, you have been set free. The doors to the courtroom are wide open for you to leave because you have been found and declared not guilty. You don't belong in prison He reminds us, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. This is the verdict that God pronounced over you in his court because of what Christ has done. That's why 1 John 3 says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. There's no shame left, no matter what you have done. No spot left upon your soul. You are lovely in his eyes. You are the beloved. And you and I need an advocate who will tell that to us every moment of every day because we struggle with amnesia to forget. Last, this is how he renews us. He points us to our defense attorney who always wins. The law is on our side. That's why David says, I love the law. Before, he hated the law. Before, everyone hates the law because it exposes that we don't measure up. But now... That Jesus has measured up for us the law we love because it's now a picture of gratitude. He intends on making us new. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. The Holy Spirit has a strategy to renew us, to make us new. 
Verse 26, he's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. He teaches and reminds us about Jesus and what he's accomplished on our behalf. Verse 20, a little further up says in that day he's talking about judgment you will you will know that i am in your father and your father and you're in me and i in you if anyone verse 23 loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him let me just give you a tweet and ask you not to tweet it jesus is a terrible example for us to follow Now, let me give you the context before you tweet it. If that's all he is, is our example, then all he can do is show how far we have fallen short of God's standard. If all Jesus is, is our example, then we still are left in our shame and our guilt. But what if the standard was fully met in Christ? Think about it. If, if you're a quarterback and your coach is Peyton Manning, you have no hope. The standard's too great. Or, or if you're a mathematician and your boss is Einstein. When Magic Johnson, a later part of a, a, a season right after he retired, they empowered him to be the head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers, thinking this is a great deal. His players hated him. The most beloved NBA player in NBA history. They hated him. Why? Because the way in which he practiced himself, he began to demand upon less talented players than himself. Less dedicated players than himself. And so he was bone crushing to them. If all Jesus is, is a standard, then he is bone crushing. He's heart enabling us to to become our own defenders and and find another way to become our own advocates. The point is, if, if we don't have Jesus as our substitute by faith, then he's an unachievable standard of our lives. So if Jesus is only our example, then we'll never measure up and we might as well accept our guilty verdict and march off to hell. No one in this church, no matter how pious he or she might be, and no one in this world meets the standard if Jesus is merely our example. You see, Jesus came to to remove the thousand-foot wall with the 20-foot rope that we must repel. Jesus is the only example will not inspire you. He is our advocate before he's ever our example. If anyone loves me, verse 23, he will obey my teaching. This is the end, so hold on to this. Obedience is a byproduct of our growth. It is not the cause of our growth. What I mean by that is the work of the Holy Spirit is to remind you of how much God loves you through the work of Jesus Christ. And then once you understand that, once I get a picture of that, I begin to love him back. And because I love him, it's a new motivation for me to obey him. And he doesn't say, go love me any old way you want. Let me tell you how to love me. Love your neighbor, not as yourself. He changes that. 
love your enemies. Much higher standard. He says, don't, don't, don't commit murder. No, 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 no. Don't even have hatred in your heart. Don't you see what he's doing? He's, he's, he's beginning to show us that our hearts are problem, not just our behavior. And that's what transforms us. The last thing is we need each other because not only is the Holy Spirit in you and he's doing this work, he's that inner voice, but he's also created other ways by which the Holy Spirit works. And one of them is through your friends. One of them is through your brother and sister in the room who comes up to you and says, you're really blowing it here. And you need that because, wait a minute, I'm not that bad. Let me defend. We're quickly going to our advocacy mode. And we just need to return to the gospel. This is what C.S. Lewis said. It's the last quote. The Holy Spirit is more, but certainly not less than an inner voice. He's agreeing with us. The Holy Spirit's in us. He's agreeing with 2 Corinthians 3.18. Do you not know that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The error would be to think, this is Lewis again, that the Holy Spirit only speaks within. Reality is the Holy Spirit speaks through the Scriptures, through the church, through Christian friends, and through books. You hear what he's saying? Is that all of these things bring to our mind... What Christ has done, that we might love Him, and as a result of loving Him, we obey Him. We repent. We come back to Him. And we need each other for that. Because 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Do you not know that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Plural. That is, is as we are together, and as we are close enough to one another, that we're able to see the weaknesses where we don't measure up to the standard and somebody can say, here's where you're blowing it. Let me walk with you. That's community. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. And this is our hope, is that we are not a church that doesn't talk about Him. But remember, whenever we're talking about Him... He's pointing us to Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith, and that by him we grow. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for these beautiful people who hear this word like me and are challenged to not obsess so much about how I have not met up to the standards of someone else but to focus upon how you have sent your son to meet that standard of the law for me. And by that love, to love you more. And by my love for you, to want to obey you, to follow you, even if that means that I die to my own dreams and hopes and aspirations for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.